I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in our favorite video games. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? Paraffin. All right, well, that is definitely a word. So we are going to be answering some questions this week as we are back to our normally scheduled, well, um, if you have questions for this show or the other shows, well, we do have two other ones now, uh, be sure to send them in to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. You can go ahead and just specify what email or what, what podcast that email is for. Uh, this way we don't fight about it. Uh, otherwise I will just kind of steal whatever is there because I can, and I will, uh, if email's not your thing, you can go ahead and submit your questions to our discord channel. We have two channels set aside. We have one for Patreon supporters as a way of saying thank you, where we look for, uh, questions first. And that's just Patreon Q and podcast questions. And then if you don't uh, support us on Patreon, we understand times are tough and not everybody can afford the monetary investment. Uh, but we do appreciate you listening to us anyway. You can go ahead and throw your questions into the Q and podcast questions channel. But without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get started with some questions. First question, and I stole this because I think this is actually more applicable. And this is from Frentis. Uh, would love to hear some speculation on why you think Corthia has Constellars. Or is it just a very similar bearded, hooded old man model? Well, if you'd like to hear my thoughts on it, tune in to the Blizzard Watch podcast. <laughs> Tuesday, when we will be answering this question, I refuse to answer it now. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I Honestly, there are a lot of potential possibilities here. One is that Constellars exist throughout various kinds of pantheons, since we've known that the, the Eternal Ones from the Pantheon of Death are similar to the Titans in many ways, and we're possibly going to be learning more about that as the expansion goes on and we end up at the Sepulchre of the first ones. It might turn out that, like, you know, for lack of a better word, going going over to the D&D side of things... You have angels, and then you have archons, and you have other, like, I think, I don't remember what the third ones are called. 
Um, the the purely lawful ones. You know the ones I'm talking about, right, Joe? Vaguely, I don't remember the name off the top of my head. Inevitables or something. But you know, basically, they're they're all celestial beings that serve various gods of different alignment. Um, evil gods have like demons and devils and stuff that serve them, but they're also, those are considered infernal beings, not celestial beings, but they're all extraplanar entities that serve these higher beings. It's possible that constellars are a kind of being that serves multiple different quote unquote pantheons. We might end up seeing, um, you know, like constellars of whatever other pantheons we might run into. Um, like maybe there's light ones. It would seem that, you know, for fell that's demons, demons play that role. Uh, but, you know, for the Pantheon of Death, maybe that's what Constellars do. Uh, or maybe it just looks like a Constellar, as you pointed out. That's another possibility. Um, another possibility is that they're dead Constellars. We have killed uh, a few. Yeah. Or, and this is one that comes interesting to me, we don't know that Corthia was originally in the Shadowlands. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know, for that matter, that the Shadow... There's a clear and and consistent you know delineation between various places now we don't know that there always was like we don't know when the first ones came along did they enforce that because we keep hearing about the ordering of the universe the ordering of various worlds you know it seems like a kind of like a fractal thing in world of warcraft that somebody comes along and organizes places that weren't organized before mm-hmm and we've heard about that that original like you know ordering of the existence that's where the the very first naru come from uh it's quite possible that before that period there was no delineation between the shadowlands and any place else every place might have been the same and maybe constellars date back to then uh, i honestly don't know but there's, i mean there's, an, there's another option too that i think is is a possibility just and i'm just kind of throwing it out there cuz i've been thinking about this since we first got to not Corthia, but Torghast, because these these creatures, whatever they are, exist in Torghast as well, right? They're, they're, a lot of them are the tormentors of the floor or whatever that you're on, um, and it is the same model. Now, it could be as simple as this is a recycled model, or this could be something that Helia brought to the table. Now, Helia did have a Constellar under her service, we actually went and fought it. It was part yeah, of Harboron. Dungeon, Harboron, uh, the the game's essential version uh, or her version of Charon, right? Uh, it is impossible. It is totally possible that she brought this to Zolval and said, "Hey, look, these are the servants that you know are are being used by well, essentially your brothers and sisters out into the world of the living or the land, the plane of the living. I happen to know how they're made. I have one under my employ. How about if I give you the blueprint?" How's that sound? So they could well, also for, go ahead. Well, just you know, going on that subject, he did also take the eye of Odin, mm-hmm. and by doing so, gained like you know the ability to see through Odin. Um, it's possible that he he has all sorts of Titan secrets that he got from Odin. Yeah, and then that's the other thing too. We don't know how far down that that depth of knowledge or even that link goes, right? And until we actually go into the raid and take out the eye of the jailer or the eye of Odin. He's had full access to it. He's used it as a model to create uh, tons of other eyes and, and to basically do uh, whatever he wanted with it. And we don't know what the far reaching effect of it is. We don't know what that gave him access to inside of Odin himself. Right. It 
could have been as simple as he sees everything he sees. It could also be that he has access to parts of his knowledge because he is literally has a part of this being in his position. But I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think it's just a reuse of a model. I think that there is something behind it. I just don't think we know what it is quite yet. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think we still haven't even dealt with Helia at this point yet. She's still kind of out there. We've only kind of kicked her to the side a little bit, but she's still kind of around. Merely a setback. Yeah, merely a setback. Uh, so that still has to come to a head. We still have to get to the sepulchre. There's a ton of stuff. We could also get to this place that Zoval's trying to get to and find out that all of this is based off of a cosmic blueprint that has been in existence since the first ones ordered things. Uh, there's a possibility of that as well. But it is a good question uh, as far as that goes, and one that I've been thinking about a lot since this expansion started. But Frontis, I don't. I don't think it's a mistake, and I don't think it's just a uh, reuse of a bearded, hooded old man. It's so. a fairly distinctive model. It is. Um, technically speaking, um, and the fact that I can't remember his name, I want to call him Algernon, but that's not his name. Algalon. Algalon. Um, yep. It's technically the Algalon model, too. Yep. Like, it is it is the same model. It's just that Algalon was completely see-through. Uh, he was a big, con- you know, he was the more, more visually, obviously, a constellar. Uh, Harbron seems to have been deconstalized a little for bit. Lack he, saw of that, a he saw that cloak that did that. Yeah, but he was he wasn't as you know he wasn't as much that you know Elagon looking mass of stars thing that, as Algalon was, and that actually has a lot of interesting implications. That Elagon is you know obviously summoned by the machinery, but has that same kind of model. Um, so yeah, I. I th- I definitely think there's there's more going on here than that, um, but we don't know yet. But hopefully we'll be finding out soon. Um, we're going to move on to our next question here, which is from Yerick. Uh, regarding the end of Shadowlands, you guys referenced that Sylvanas could be the new jailer, but what if she was something else? Zval betrayed his siblings and was jailed. Then they took a piece of him and created the Arbiter, basically a robot. A new balanced Arbiter would probably be better. Wouldn't a newly balanced Sylvanas fit the bill? She's not exactly killed, not exactly redeemed, but it would make for a fitting end, unless they make her an Anduin two sides of the same Arbiter. I personally don't see that ever happening, um, even with her you know, missing pieces thrown back into the husk that is her body. She would, that would be anathema to her. Like, that would be something that I think would be so horrible that unless she was forced to do it, it would not happen. Think about it. She wanted to unmake reality or was willing to go pretty dang far to do that because she didn't want people to, like, serve. That was the whole thing. Her whole shtick was, hey, I'm being forced to serve. I was forced to serve. All the Forsaken were forced to serve. In death, now we know that you are forced to serve even more. There is no release. There is no freedom. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. That light is just basically another job interview waiting to happen in which you essentially have no say. Because at this point, don't forget, the Arbiter is telling you where your soul goes. Actually, the Arbiter doesn't even tell you. It just sends you. Yeah, the Arbiter, doesn't. you you literally have no agency in this. You just, you die and then you end up somewhere. Yeah. Now think about if Sylvanas was in that position where she had to judge or move every soul, every being that transitioned to the Shadowlands and transitioned to the afterlife and told them, yeah, now you're going to go to Revendreth and you're going to serve, or now you're going to go to Ardenwald and you're going to serve, and now you're going to go to Bastion and you're going to serve, and you have no say in it. That's not what she wanted. That's not what she was all about. That's not why she did all of the horrible things she did. It would be, it wouldn't be fitting. It would be horrible and it would also 
I, I hate to say it like this. I think it would make every horror that she visited upon all of the beings of Azeroth even worse. And like, cause then it was just for nothing. There was, there was nothing. And now she's just basically feeding into that cycle. What do you think? Uh, first off, you don't get to be the, the queen of death, which is essentially what that job would be. It's, it's just, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the complaints from players about the handling of the Solanus's story has been that the continuous kicking down the road of, of any consequences of her actions, mm-hmm. even when she gets ousted from the horde, it doesn't really matter. It didn't stop her. It didn't hurt her. Like we went straight from BFA to Shadowlands. And I mean, I don't have a problem with that, but the thing is, is that if after being ousted as war chief, we didn't see her for an expansion, at least it would feel like she was, it was a setback. It was something that actually, you know, cost her something, but it didn't feel that way. You just go straight to her next big gambit and she's still pulling strings and doing stuff. It doesn't feel like anything has happened because of what she did. It doesn't feel like there's been any consequences, not even not to the horde as an organization and certainly not to the main actor in it. I mean, Sorfang died. Sorfang paid for what happened. And and I mean that like when I say paid for, I don't mean good. He's dead vengeance on him for what he did. I mean, literally he looked at what he'd done Mm -hmm. and what he had allowed to do. And he decided this is no, I, this cannot be, I can't accept this. Uh, and he took actions and yes, those actions cost him his life. That's the narrative weight of his actions, but they were actions he chose to try and make up for what he did. There's a, there's a consequence, there's acceptance, there's an arc. Sylvanas has not yet had an arc and that's not to say she won't get one or that she's not getting the seeds for one. It's just that right now it's been how many years since, since, uh, the beginning of battle for Azeroth, since the, the pre-expansion event for it. Oh. Like three years now? Yeah, uh, August 14th, 2018. So just before that. So 2018. Yeah, so, so three years ago, Sylvanas burned down Teldrassil and killed all those people. Um, yes, we can go back and forth on why didn't Elune stop it? How come Elune thought that this was the right thing to do? Blah, blah, whatever. Point being, Sylvanas is still the one who did it. Mm-hmm. And yes, the Horde helped her do it. The Horde bears culpability for it. Uh, but she's still the finger on the trigger here. And there has been nothing. Now, should there be something? Absolutely. Should there be a story that deals with this? Yes. Should there be consequences? Yes. Being the arbiter would simultaneously be the worst thing you could do to Sylvanas and yet not a punishment at all. It's not a punishment. It's not even an admission of culpability. It'd be one thing if she took up the arbiter role saying, you know, this has been, this has been, you know, life, life is a pointless joke because when we find out that in death, you just have a different life that's foisted upon you. And that's why I want to break everything. And therefore, as Arbiter, I will break it. It's going to not be that anymore. When you die, your afterlife is is personal. It isn't, you don't get forced off. You pick where you're going. You know, you get a decision. The worst people will still go to hell because, you know, we have a mall. We're going to use it. But otherwise, your your afterlife is not based on where do you, where will you toil the most effectively, but on what are you most suited to. And you will be involved in that decision. That's what, you know, that would at least work, but it would have to be the, there needs to be a part where Sylvanas, even if she doesn't feel guilty or doesn't have any remorse about it, accepts the consequences of her actions Yeah, where she's like, you know, I did all this. I don't regret it. I do it again, but you know, I get that you're going to do something to me and I accept that that was the cost that would still be, that's, you need an arc. So until we know what the arc is, I can't really 
say whether or not I think this would be a suitable thing, but on the face of it, it doesn't feel like a punishment or it doesn't feel like this is the cost I'm willing to pay to get things to be the way I believe they have to be. And that's the thing. When you say punishment, people often think, well, you know, why should the character be punished? It's not necessarily that the character should be punished. It's that actions have consequences. Mm -hmm. It's inevitable. They exist. You cannot have actions without consequences. It's, it's, it's called a law of physics when, when it's, you know, every action is an equal and opposite reaction that happens in our, in our day-to-day lives. When you do something, things react to the thing you did. And those reactions are part of the consequences of your actions that needs to be there. So that's where I am before I can say, should Sylvanas be the arbiter? Joe's completely right. Everything Joe said about how Sylvanas wouldn't want to be the arbiter or even want the position of arbiter to exist. Absolutely don't think she'd want that. But I do think she, I could imagine her allowing it to happen if she knew that she could use it to change the thing forever, that she could finally make it be something where for good or for ill, people get a, get a say in what happens to them. And not everybody should have a say because some people like Sylvanas. And I think that would be the interesting thing of where Sylvanas accepts that her fate shouldn't be in her hands. That's the cost of putting it in everyone else's that she had to make a choice. She made the choice and the choice has consequences. The choice because of that choice, she is now essentially the jailer of the damned. And I think it's basically ultimately the same job. Yeah. You know, it's basically becoming the Lich King. It's basically becoming that figure who has to put the worst aside. And maybe she's good for that because in her, she's now seen that she has the capacity for the worst and she did it and she doesn't regret it or repent it, but she does understand it. That could work. But I, until we see where we are until the arc is, is laid out for us. I, I don't, I don't know. Is I guess I I don't feel like it's a good it's a good thing until we see it. As for Anduin though, leave Anduin out of this. Yeah, he's he's had a rough he's had a rough year. That guy is well, plus what has he done? You know he he's tried to stop things from getting worse every step of the way and suffered for it quite a bit. Um, first his dad died when the Legion invaded. Then he ended up king of Stormwind, which he had no idea. Of. Like he's like I didn't want it. no holy god no. Um, and now he's basically been dragged to the land of the dead and turned into a puppet for like a pretentious, you know, death God, uh, you know, at his heart, Zoval is just essentially like if not my chemical romance song took over your life. Yeah. 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 I can't really argue with that. The thing too is like at the end of this, we don't even know that we're going to have an arbiter anymore. We don't know what's going to yeah, happen. We have no idea what the what the state of the Shadowlands and, will be. And we have a nasty tendency of like changing things to suit our mortal whims, uh, whether it is by choice or just by the consequence of our actions. And we talk about this a lot. Um, what if at the end of this we decide that there shouldn't be an arbiter? That we've we've already changed how the covenants work with each other. We've already forced them to have to interact with each other on a level that they haven't had to do in eons. Uh, what happens at the end of what we say? There should be no arbiter. There should be a place where terrible people go. And if you are, you know, uh, uh, one of the uh, the bastion servants, why can't I think of their name now, Kyrian? That are you know, pulling down the souls and they're really that terrible. Sure. Chuck them into the mall, whatever. 
or chug them into Revendreth as the the penalty. And if they can't succeed there, Revendreth does its actual job and then sends them to the Maw or lets them move on to other places like they're supposed to do. Uh, but otherwise, you let them choose. You let them choose what fate they'll they will have or what they want to do or if they don't want to serve at all. Maybe th- we've talked about there being possibly thousands of realms or hundreds of realms, realms innumerable. When it comes to the Shadowlands, the, those doors still exist. Anima is flowing again. We can open those doors. Maybe they get to pick where they go, unless they're absolutely terrible and need to be purged of their sins or whatever the case is. And an Arbiter is not needed for that, right? An Arbiter doesn't necessarily have to do all the decision making for those people. And I could see us as heroes, us as like mortals that have sort of that that mindset of, you know, you should be in control of your own destiny, which is a theme that has existed in this game for i don't know 16 years um what if we decide that you shouldn't be forced anymore and we convince all the covenants to do that and now there is no arbiter what are you gonna do with her right so i think matt's absolutely right i think that we have to see where the story is going to kind of go a little bit more but i honestly do not think that voluntarily or involuntarily having sylvanas as an arbiter would ever be anything positive for her or the souls that she would have to, to judge and part out. And it would not deal with any of the consequences of any of her actions over the last decade. So our two cents on that. Uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to the next one. Uh, Dear watchers, what is a paladin's role in wow? And how has it changed over time? Are they simply holy warriors to be utilized as a weapon? Or are they also missionaries of a sort spreading the message of the light? For that matter, is the light even a religion with doctrines and rules, or is it more of a recognition of certain power? Any info you can give me of paladins and the light would be awesome. And that is the from our all your questions is yes. <laughs> all right. Well, can we explain to Rickles why? Go for it, man. No, it's just yes. Let's move on. Any, no. <laughs> the thing about paladins is some paladins, when you're talking about the paladins that you're talking about, you're basically talking about paladins as they existed before, say, World of Warcraft. Yeah. The light-wielding warrior, holy warrior, that is a very human conception of a paladin. And the dwarves that got paladins in uh, World of Warcraft, I think they might have been a couple before that, but they, the, the, main, the main thing where dwarves got paladins was in World of Warcraft. And that, again, it is just, it's just them picking up the skills and abilities of that group of human warriors. It's just them sharing their techniques. And since dwarves had priests... It made sense that they could, you know, reach out to the light in that way and, and get warrior, get warrior knights, get paladins. But now we have a whole bunch of different types of paladins. We have sun we've paladins. Got the blood knights. Yeah, we've got the blood knights, the sun walkers, the vindicators, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the Zandalari ones, the prelates. And they all kind of have a relationship with the light, but they all kind of see it differently. And that's not even, that's not even counting like the the night elf paladins that we have as npcs now there's two night elf paladins from legion that were actually in the the water the order hall because even even paladins who don't let actual night elf players play paladins understand that night elves are cooler than they are so they let them join um now that i've said something stupid but but seriously we we have more paladins than we used to have and they they all have cultural assumptions baked into their the way they approach the light. So the light is part of a lot of different kinds of religions and faiths, but it isn't itself a religion or a faith. It's a philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the touching of the light doesn't require you to believe much of anything. 
Um, I harp on the guy absolutely every single time we talk about paladins, but um, the one from the Four Horsemen, and since we just talked about Zolval, I want to say Zolval, but it's not that guy. Zelik, Zelik thank you. You're welcome. Um, Zelik can touch the light despite being undead. Yeah. And actually controlled by the Lich Gang. He can still reach out and use the light. The, the light doesn't seem to be like it, it kind of does have I, I think it's one of the situations where saying it has a mind or a will or a personality is too small for what it has but it's also too it's too personal a thing the light yeah. is impersonal yeah the light doesn't it, it's not fair to say the light doesn't care about you the light doesn't care about your opinion because there's truth and only truth the light is all about one true thing mm-hmm the the truth as we as the light perceives it that's the only important thing since the light has an opinion on what the truth is unlike the void which is like everything is true we can do anything we want the vo- the light's like no there is one path and you will follow it the light is basically the force that illuminates the path the light is showing you where to go if you don't go that way that's not right you are doing the wrong thing mm-hmm. you know does that deny our free will? Yeah, kind of does. I mean, if, if you're presented with two choices, but told you can only like, you can have cookie or broccoli, but only broccoli, but cookies right there. And you, you said I could have either you can, but that choice is wrong. That's kind of how the light approaches it. It's, but again, that's too personal. That's a stern figure talking to you. The light is not a stern figure talking to you. The light is not talking at all. The light doesn't like, when the light tells you something, it doesn't tell you it. It doesn't have a conversation with you. It like shows you things because the light is illumination. Look at how hard Velen's life has been. Mm-hmm. The light shows Velen things all the time, and he has no effing idea what to do with them. Like he, there's no context. He can't ask questions. He can't be like, "Excuse me." Previously, you showed me something entirely different. What's the deal? The light does not. That that's not the light's deal. The light is not here to personally explain things to you. The light is a huge cosmic impersonal force and everybody brings who they are to its interpretation. The Sunwalkers view the light through the lens, the metaphorical lens of the sun. They attribute to the light, all the attributes of the sun. And that makes sense, you know, but it isn't the way that the blood elves see it. The blood elves are much more like the light is useful. Sure. But to them, the light is like anything that they use as a tool. Mm hmm. Even though they've moved away from the whole rip it out, you know, control it, dominate it thing, they still view the light in a utilitarian fashion. Um, it's like if you have a torch, you can absolutely use it to illuminate, or you could burn people with it. Both are ad- both are perfectly valid uses of that source of, of of power that you're holding, that torch with a big flame on the top of it. But you don't have to use it for either. You could put it in like a container and like bank some coals with it and and use it that way. But none of this is, you know, I make decisions based on what the light shows me because the light is the only way I can see them at all. But that doesn't mean that the light, you know, if I look in a, if I hold up the light and look in a room and see a bunch of stuff to the blood elves, I now see all that stuff. I can make decisions based on all that stuff. The light might have a preference, but it doesn't get to vote on my decisions. And that's a different way to approach it. And this has evolved over years too, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so yeah, absolutely. I'll read an excerpt here and we can kind of like, it, it, we can talk a little bit about it. Cause everything that Matt pointed out is absolutely, 
but it the game guide originally used to call it this this is the call of the paladin to protect the weak to bring justice to the unjust and to vanquish evil from the darkest corners of the world these holy warriors are equipped with plate armor so they can confront the toughest of foes and the blessing of light allows them to heal wounds and in some cases even restore life to the dead ready to serve paladins can defend their allies with sword and shield they can wield massive 200 weapons against their enemies the light grants paladins additional power against the undead and demons ensuring that these profane beings corrupt the world no longer well i mean we kind of already know that that's not necessarily the case anymore because undead can wield the light this has been proven they can do this so it's not necessarily just purging it from all undead uh, well yeah but we do know also that it hurts, it hurts them. them it absolutely does because i think it's like it's interesting to think about the what the light basically seems to oppose both the forces of undeath and the forces of like fell demons mm-hmm. and so forth because both aren't supposed to be here they're untrue things yes in the truth of the cosmos as it's supposed to exist they're not supposed to be here the void has no problem with either of them because they're both things that could be true and anything that could be true is true like the void is all about you know the void is looking into a room and it's pitch black and you can't see anything so anything could be in there yep i mean there are things that are more likely to be in there i probably don't have like an an, an archaeopteryx in my basement just because the light's off that doesn't mean i have an archaeopteryx down there but the void would tell you but maybe you do maybe i gotta go uh check my basement but when i'm back no no seriously though the void is all about that the void is that voice that you know you look in the basement you're like oh my god what's down there and the, the void is like there's a serial killer maybe mm-hmm. maybe there's a cake Maybe there's a serial killer with a cake. Maybe there's a raw dripping ham. You don't know. Maybe you're hungry. Maybe you should have eaten before the podcast, to which I say, you're right, Void. I should have. Uh, But again, that's the thing. That thing Joe was talking about. It comes down to this thing exists, but how other people approach it is different. Humans, when when they became paladins, humans had this thing happening. It was called the Horde, and it was effing them up, and they wanted it to stop. Mm-hmm. And they were fighting orc necrolites who casually rip souls out of bodies and throw the bodies at you as weapons. They wanted that to stop. So they went to the light and said, help us stop this. So that's why the reason that they're so powerful against undead and, and, and demons is partially because those beings are empowered by forces that the light does not want to see in this world. And partially because that's what the humans wanted to do with it. Uh, it's again, it's like, you know, if you have a torch, you can illuminate a room or you can burn stuff with it. And they chose to burn stuff with it because they had stuff to burn. Now, if you look at how the Draenei and especially Velen view the light, it's a much different relationship. Uh, it's much closer, first off, but it's also much more personally willing to accept its directives. Mm-hmm. Like the Eridar who were not willing to go along for the ride on that became the Eridar, the, the, the Eridar that we now have, or the Monari Eridar. That's everybody who wouldn't go along. All the ones that did go off into space with Velen were willing to listen to the light. They were willing to be told by it what it wanted in a way that other people aren't. And that's important too, because we know the Titans can use the light. Yep. But the Titans certainly don't use the light the way the Naru do. We know that the denizens of the Shadowlands can wield the light. Mm-hmm. It's just not in but, the exact same way. And the ones from Revendreth sure as heck can't. They use well. They did. They used. They tried to weaponize it. They were using yeah, it as but a weapon. They, they were using it against each other because it kills them. They are burned by it. And it's not like well, that's, also- that. And that goes back to what I was talking about with the undead. 
the 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 beings in Revendreth are on the side of the spectrum of of death where it crosses over into being destructive, you know, when the light interfaces with it. And that's interesting. It doesn't tell us exactly what that means, but the ones in Bastion clearly have no problem with it. They yeah. love it. They're using it everywhere. Yep. They're, they're like, you know, yay, let's put up more of like light festooned banners. Uh, you know, the emissary from Revendreth is completely covered head to toe in black and won't even come out from underneath his parasol. That's fine. More, more light buntings. I, I think there's like these forces interact in ways that we don't exactly understand, but the light in particular, it's like so straightforward that it is in fact hard to figure out. Yeah. And because I, it's like, mm, go ahead. I'll I was going to say, it, it's, it's almost like the way that I look at the light and as particularly in terms of like paladins, just to kind of bring it back to the framework is that Matt's right is the light is sort of like vanilla yogurt. You, everybody brings their own extra toppings or flavoring to that fla- that to that vanilla yogurt whenever they you know, they bring it out, right? And that's a weird analogy, but I th- I think it, it it's apt, right? It's very the light itself is just a thing, right? It doesn't have uh like what it, we talked about this before. It doesn't have like doctrines that it gives out. It doesn't have a personality. It doesn't have necessarily a will. Uh, which is different from the Naru, and a lot of time, and we're, we're going to talk about that actually relatively shortly here. Uh, but a lot of people associate the Naru as the light; they're not the same. Uh, they intersect, but they're not the same thing. And every race, every time that a paladin is brought forth, their relationship to that light is different. Like looking at the Zandalari, the Zandalari's relationship with the light is actually not necessarily through the lens of the light itself. It's through the lens of the Loa and that's how they gain access to it. So everything they do is framed from the aspect of these beings that they've interacted with for their entire lifetimes. The the entire lifetime of their culture has existed. They've interacted with the Loa. They can go visit a Loa. They can go sit there and talk with, with, with Gonk, you know, they, they can, they can do this, whereas in fact, the podcast he's doing, Talk with Gonk, is absolutely the best thing. On you should totally get that. Uh, this week on Talk with Gonk, Gonk tell you about light. No, but seriously, as much as I'm making a joke, Joe's absolutely onto something with this because that's the way the Zandalari approach spiritual concepts, mm-hmm. druidism, much, healing, all yeah. that stuff. It's all done through that lens. And if you look at the way the night elves do it. It's more or less through the lens of a loon. And we know that night elf paladins exist and it's by the glory and the light of a loon, right? They, they interpret it based off of their culture. So as the game has gone on, and this is definitely uh, uh, something that has happened because of the expanding universe of the game. Don't forget when we first were introduced to paladins, it was humans. That was it. They were knights uh, and wielders of the light combined into one. They were priest knights, essentially. That's expanded as more cultures and more races and more worlds essentially have been brought into the fold under the, the title of Paladin, right? And they all have their own titles. Paladin's sort of the catch-all. So you you have the Vindicators, who might have been the first Paladins. We don't know. Uh, you have the Prelates. You have the the Blood Knights. You have all of these different factions that, that come under the banner of Paladin, but approach it differently and do it in such a way that makes it very personal to them. And that's yeah, like look at look at the Dark Irons. Yeah, the Dark Iron Paladins. It's it's still through that idea of fire, and that's one of the reasons I use fire as a metaphor when I discuss it a lot because fire is a really good metaphor for this because it, again, it is something that you can use in different ways. 
fire can like cook your food or warm your house. It can be like a benevolence that makes your life better. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about all the things you wouldn't be able to do without fire, especially in a world that doesn't have like, you know, doesn't have electricity or anything. You know, you, fire is the way you light most of your house. Fire is the way you cook your food. Fire is the way you keep the house warm. Fire is the way you make tools. Like, you know, your blacksmithing culture, fire is a big deal. Fire is how I made that sword. Fire fire purges the unclean. Fire is the yeah. one that protects you from the plagues. Uh, that was the whole thing. Look at the burning of Stratholme. Yeah. Fire, but- you know, if these diseased bodies cannot be allowed to fester here, we will burn them and then it won't be an issue. All that's true. But at the same time, fire can burn down your house. Mm-hmm. Uh, fire can torture you. If someone's using fire brands on your body, you will, you will do almost anything to make it Li- stop. Literally death Knight starting quest, <laughs> like fire yeah. brands. Holy. Like, yeah, it, the there's light, a lot of things fire can do, but fire itself isn't any of those things. Fire is not a spirit of warming your house. It is not a spirit of making tools. It is just fire. The truth of fire is itself. And that's kind of how the light is. The light is just there a lot of the time. The light's main purpose, the reason the light is so opposed to the void is purely because light doesn't want there to be void. It wants everything filled in with itself. Yep. Light spreads, light grows. Light doesn't just, if you you turn a light on in a room. Yeah. If you turn a light on in a room, just go into a dark room and turn the light on or let the light in and the light will touch everything. It will fill the whole space. That's what light's trying to do. And so it's not surprising. Void doesn't like it. A, it strips away all those interesting illusions that void wants to keep. B, it won't let void be like light will not allow void to exist. It will not allow shadow to exist. Even though shadows are only made by the interaction of, of, you know, light and other objects, light kind of makes those shadows, but light doesn't want them there. Light wants to fill them in. Mm -hmm. That's if you think of it that way, but that's not really a want. Light doesn't want to do that. Light does that. That is how light is. It's like fire. Fire doesn't want to burn down your house. Fire just burns down houses. Yeah. There, there's an, there's an old story and, and, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but like, there's an old thing of like, you know, a, a boy wanders into the woods and finds a spirit of fire and makes a deal with it. The fire would cook its food. Fire would keep it warm at night. Uh, the fire would, as long as the boy continued to feed it, help keep him alive. But at one point the fire burns the boy and the boy asks the fire, why did you do that? And it's just, a, I don't know, man, I'm just fire. This is what I do. Like, that's kind of how it is. It's just, that's just kind of what happens. But again, that paladins have evolved from in-game terms of, of what they were from a very narrow band to a very wide spectrum. And as the game goes on and more races start to adopt paladinism, uh, it's going to change how the light is interpreted and formed and through the lens of their cultural experiences. Orc paladins are going to blow your mind. I was thinking uh, the why can't I think of the fox the Volpera Volpera Paladins it's gonna happen you no nah, Volpera Paladins I feel like we kind of understand how they work but the way that orcs view existence is fascinating when you when you get the word the best part is that orc culture is now so completely different from what it used to be that there's an entire interesting subtext to this concept mm-hmm. but. Yeah, I think if I was if I was given control over World of Warcraft's direction for a day, I could set one thing into motion and it would be it would be carried forward. It would be expanding paladins to every race. I would agree because it would be fascinating. Paladins, 
paladins, like we talked about the night elves, but think about how forsaken paladins, Mm -hmm. because forsaken, the approach to that is really simple. It's much the same as a forsaken, holy priest. It's I'm willing to let this fire burn me to make use of it. I'm willing to endure that. Which is not something that humans have. With it. Humans find the light comforting and soothing and warming. But a Forsaken, it's agonizing. And I kind of get this. This is a personal thing. Uh, since my eyes started going bad, I, I get eye injections. And I've had a lot, a lot of laser surgery. Which means so far I can still see enough to read and so forth. Which is great. But I'm astonishingly light sensitive. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't go out during the day without sunglasses. If I do, I can't see. And I will be in pain. Like, like. Just using a bright monitor can give me a headache, the likes of which you've probably never experienced, I hope. I hope you've never had a headache like this. And But that's the Forsaken Paladin right there. That's what they go through. If a Forsaken becomes a Paladin, that's what they endure every step of the way. Um, a Pandaren Paladin, to them, you know, warmth, safety, security, these are incredibly important things. They're, they're you know, there's that old, why do you fight what is worth fighting for aspect of Pandaren culture. When they decide that something is worth fighting for, they're absolutely ferocious warriors because they're giant bear people. And a lot of us forget that. You know, we like look at the the the, the Pandar and I'm like, they're cute, they're fuzzly, yes, but they're also a big freaking bear. Mm-hmm. That guy, that that Pandaren that you find so cute and cuddly, is almost as big as a Tauren, and he's a bear. You know, he's got teeth. He can hurt you pretty badly. Um, so. When they are roused to anger, they are implacable opponents. When they are not, they're they're calm and peaceful, and they ha- they like eating with their friends and sharing stories and you know being around a warm. Look at how their their structures are are built. They put a big hearth in the middle of the freaking thing, right in a in a giant circle that everybody can sit around. That's how they view that kind of thing. That's going to affect how their paladins work. Like Joe. Think you pick a race and, and that doesn't have paladins and describe how they'd go just using you know right now. Oh man, you're gonna make me choose. Um, I don't know, man. What would you choose? I'm gonna tell you to do gnomes. Go ahead and do gnomes. I mean, gnomes would probably be from a more mechanical standpoint. It's it's very detached. It's very clinical, right? Like they would look at it in terms of almost like machinery. What is this doing? It would be almost like a fuel source for them. How can See, I, I? I I always was thinking that they might be more like. Think about what when you're trying to fix something, like you're underneath your car trying to fix the engine. What is the most important thing in that moment when you're trying to figure out what's wrong? Literally trying to figure out what's wrong. Like it's no trying to see fair what's wrong because you're trying to figure it out. But in order to figure it out, you need information. You need to see. You need illumination. Yeah. Yeah. And the illumination part of being a paladin, because that's what they do. They bring the light. So for a, a gnome, but think about like we could do this for every race. We could do this for every race. Imagine nightborn paladins, man. Yeah, and like, how how would they how would they approach that? Because they're so used to the arcane. It's like control and formulation, right? So yeah. how would they how would they how would they view the light? Would it be that much different than how Blood Knights started? Would it be something where they look at it as almost like a formulaic thing where they try to break it down like a spell or or an intricate spell work to figure out? Uh, the best way to utilize it to accomplish their goal. Uh, or do they rebel? Or do our, they rebel, our, yeah. Our, our nightborn paladins, the ones who are like, no, enough of every time we try and control things, we screw it up. Look at what happened with uh, the, the Legion. Look at what happened 10,000 years ago. Every time we try to be in control, we screw it up. I'm turning myself over to a higher power. 
I'm trusting the light will show me what I need to do. That's yeah. and but it, that could those both could be viable options. Every paladin probably approaches it a little differently. I mean, Arthas clearly had different views on how he should be using it compared to Uther. Part of that was youthful inexperience. Part of that was his own nature. And part of that was him being tempted off the path because paladins aren't perfect. But there's just so much to this that you could do. And my God, we've been talking about it a long time. <laughs> uh, we have, but I think it's a good topic. And it's honestly, it's something we could probably do a little bit more with future. And who knows, we might uh, in one of our what if episodes. But we're going to move uh, to a topic that's adjacent to the light a little bit. And we did get a several uh, Naru questions would be the best way to put it. So I'm going to go ahead and ask some of them real quick here and see what we've got. So this one comes from Jack Jack. Do we have an in-game reason why Adal didn't help us out in Legion or why they and Zera seem to be working at cross purposes in respect to Illidan? Do we know how Naru work or are they a hive mind working towards the true path or are they nominally a race of beings suffused with enough light that they view their actions as righteous and their path? I've had this theory and this kind of ties in with something we're going to talk about a little bit later that it's sort of like the idea of light refracting through a prism. Because that's essentially what Naru are. They're prisms. They are crystal beings that when the light passes through, it shifts. It's not necessarily the pure white of everything. And all of the Naru seem to be individual-minded beings that reflect aspects of that light. And to them, it almost seems like their path is that one true path because that's that particular spectrum of light that they were... It's, you know, we're going to talk about it in a little bit here, but... It's fascinating to me because they are sometimes working at cross purposes, uh, but they do come together. Look at what happened with the uh, burning of that section of Revendreth when they they waged war on the Shadowlands, essentially. They waged war on Revendreth the same way that the Void waged war on Bastion. They can work together. They oftentimes will work together. Um, let me. Here's the thing to, when we're talking about that. We know that Zira was the overall commander of the Army of the Light. Mm-hmm. Adal was in that army. Adal is a member of the Army of the Light, as were the ones he came alongside. Uh, I think it was Oros and Muru are the one. Oros, Muru, and uh, there's the one. There's other Naru in Outland. They came with Adal at, in the in the giant Tempest Keep structure to help the 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 Draenei when they heard what was happening to them. Clearly, Adal and Zira were not on the same page about Illidan, right? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much without explanation. But at the same time, when, oh, bloody hell, come on, we know her name. We've talked about her a billion times. She was hunting Illidan all over the place. You're talking about Maeve? Won't, thank you, Maev, yes. Um, when Maev came and said to Adal, you must help me hunt Illidan, they were like, no, no, that would be insane. He's he's fighting the Legion. He's opposing them. That's That's good. Uh, anybody who opposes the Legion, we, we're, you know, if he leaves, if he left us alone, we wouldn't have a problem with him in the first place. And that's there's they have differing but similar mindsets. It's kind of like I like to think of it since you're talking about it. Think of the the Atamal crystal. Mm-hmm. The original Atamal crystal was one singular crystal, and when it broke, suddenly each crystal was a different color. Yep. And did different things. Yep. So I, I just wanted to contribute that to what you're saying. Continue with what you're going on with. 
Yeah. So, and I think it ties into the the next thing, which I'm going to sort of, uh, I'm going to ask this and read this off because I think it fits here well. Uh, and this is from Verdigree. Uh, it is the Technicolor Naru. Uh, talking to Ziri, the Naru outside Black Temple, the text is, the light surrounding Ziri pulses blue. The Naru welcomes you as an ally in the field of battle. This inspired me to look at some of the other Naru and their colors. Uh, Adal, brighter than the others, yellow and white. Veru, Oros, and the Exodar, blue and green. Garros, purple and pink gear vendor. Uh, Zera is much more golden than Adal, but could be meant to look like the same category up-rest. Zarali is white with a slightly rosy pink aura. What could it all mean? Perhaps the light can be many colors, but it's always yellow gold for paladins and priests. Uh, perhaps like the Titan Pantheon and the Pantheon of Death, and I would cross over into other cosmic influences and look. Zerali gave me gave the impression that there were lots of close-minded jerks like Zira back home, but would Adal or Sahara, or Sarah, who raised Kalia, really be so heartless? So this sort of is something that I, I when I didn't notice this at first, I'm going to be 100% honest. Um, I had known that some of the Naru were presented differently, but after Vertigree brought this up, I went back and did some, some roaming around and this is accurate. Every single Naru you interact with does have a slightly different model, a slightly different coloration, uh, and the interactions with them are all slightly different. And I think it feeds into that because again, like the cover of, uh, dark side of the moon, where you have the light beam going through the prism and pink Floyd's, you know, uh, album cover shoots it all in the different spectrums of light. That's kind of what happens. And and that's absolutely what happened with the Atomai crystal. When it became absolutely. the Atomal crystals, it became multi. I want to actually go up to the question Zul asked, because I think this kicks into it as well. I would agree. Let's go for it. Uh, the question Zul asked was, could you theoretically slash practically crush a Naru down into something small enough to be placed on a ring setting? Could we make a Naru diamond ring? I don't think you could crush them to do that. Well, but you can use their fragments. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm going. I was going to say, Vertigree pointed this out actually too that there is Corthia relics are actually shattered, uh, shattered Naru fragments. Well, but think about what happened when Zira died. Mm -hmm. We put her in a crucible and used her light yep. to in, in you know in conjunction with the shadow. Mm -hmm. the, the light and the void can be used together, and they do interplay with each other each affects the other each is makes the other in a way without darkness there is no light is nothing there's no point to, to, to having it and without light you can't have shadow shadow can only exist if there's light to to make shadow otherwise you've got nothing and there's i don't know that they're it's because they're interacting with other forces so much as i think that naru are individual beings with their own minds and their own opinions. And they are beings that interact with shadow because the, the shadow is part of their life cycle. They, they are at that fulcrum point where they, they exist. And therefore, since they exist, they have opinions and feelings and beliefs in a way that the light itself doesn't. The light is light, but the Naru are not the light. They're just beings that interact with it in much the same way that we do just in a much bigger scale. Adal clearly doesn't agree with Zira about everything. And yet, you know, he's in the, the organization that she is the head of. And clearly, we don't know if Adal is a prime Naru. We, we know Adal is a very big, powerful Naru. We don't know if he's one of the ones who was actually created. And we know that there were more than one prime Naru. There, there were a few of them. They were created at the very dawn of our universe by, by something. Don't know what. No one's ever actually said... Whatever it is, apparently a loon can somehow interact with it. Uh, 
but that's that's neither here nor there. A balloon being a narrow or not, we we don't have that right now. But when you're talking about all the stuff you're talking about, I really think that 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 idea that you can take a piece of a naru and you can say make the Ashbringer out of it. Yeah. And when they first found the crystal that w- went into the Ashbringer, it was black and it was being used by an orc necrolite to 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 channel the void. Yep. And it destroyed uh, Mograine's hand when he touched it. When Alexandros Mograine picked that crystal up after he killed that orc, it destroyed his hand. And when he told the others about this, the other paladins who were at the order, I forget which one, I think it was actually Abendus, said, well, then let's destroy it. And he, he hit it with the holy light. And instead of it being destroyed, it absorbed it, it. Yeah, it absorbed it and turned into light. And that seems to be the nature of the Naru. They reflect what they they're hit with because like Joe said, like the cover of dark side of the moon, they split the light up. They're, they're prisms, they're reflective, they're refractory. And now, and this might be something that links back to the origin of the Naru, which we still don't know. We don't know exactly where they come from. We don't know what their origin is, how they were birthed into the universe there. We've speculated that they were thrown into the prime material plane by, from the plane of light or whatever that is. But there's also the possibility that these are in essence, pieces of a larger entity. And we've seen that that is not an uncommon thing. That is not something that hasn't happened before. Look at the Shah. The Shah are the various heads of Yasharaj after he was destroyed and plucked from the planet and crushed uh, that stuck around. They were our reflections of the aspects of Yasharaj, the seven heads. Uh, we've seen that idea where beings can be split. It is a common theme. Look at um, Logash uh, slash Varian when he was split. He was two aspects of the same being. Look at Sylvanas and, at Sil- uh, and Lothar. Yep. Not Lothar. Um. Oh, boy, I'm having a terrible time on names today. <laughs> Are you talking about Anduin? Ain't, no, not Anduin. Uh, God, he's the paladin. We, we, he was he was Arthas's mentor. Why can I not think of his Uther. name? Thank you, Uther. There you go. Uh, Uther and Sylvanas both apparently had their souls sundered. Yeah. And here's since we're talking about this, think about it this way. Look at what a Naru looks like. When you see Zira getting reconstructed, they bring her core and they put it in with the rest of her pieces and then she gets up and is floating around there. What does she look like? Disconnected pieces. Yep. What if the entire Naru people are a fractal re- reflection of that kind of thing? They're like if you took a Naru apart and you have all the pieces on the ground, each Naru is a piece of that original being. Yep. Maybe that being is gone now. Maybe it was one of the the first ones and now it's dead but all of its pieces are still around. Just like when Zira died, all of her pieces still had the light. They were still capable still of bending used. the light, still capable of yeah. focusing the light. Yeah. Still, they still had it in them. Yep. They were charged with it. It was part of them. That's something to think about. I'm not saying we know what that means, but it is something to think about that in a, in a four dimensional sense, each Naru might be one of those shards inside of a, a Naru of a much larger entity. And it might exist outside of what we would consider space and time and all that stuff. But it is like thinking about the colors of various narrow. Like when, when you say that, you know, Zerali gives the impression there are a lot of closed minded jerks like Zara back home, but it might not necessarily be closed mindedness. One of the things that an infection, an infected organism's body does is it tries to close off the infection. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that reptiles and birds do, do heal slower than mammals do 
is because their bodies close off an infection site very effectively, much more effectively than mammals do. Mammals heal faster. Birds and reptiles heal better. They are much more likely, if they can get food, to survive an infection. If you if a mammal gets an infected area, it can be really bad for the for the mammal. It can spread fast because we heal faster and we don't take the time to close off the infection as effectively as they do. The Naru might be doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like it might not be that they hate you know Zarali and wouldn't ha- let her come back, but they wouldn't let her come back immediately or treat her the same because to her to them she's infected. And which would make sense with the whole possibly they interact with each other in a way that links them together physically. Because if that is, in fact, why she's being cut off or they're being cut off, if they interface, does that infection transfer? Does that start changing the core yeah. of it? Right. And we and we know that they have relationships like that amongst themselves because Zira's core could have only been awoken by a direct linear descendant or, uh, you know, possibly an ancestor. Um so possibly the Naru, all the Naru are a loon. Okay, there, there you go. There is one for you, Anne. <laughs> um, but like, seriously, we, we know that Zira needed Oros to waken her core. Yep. And that's why the, the Legion killed Oros. Um, so why could Oros waken her core? Because it ultimately is his core. Like they're, they're related much more directly than like you have a kid. It's more like you are a piece of me. You are a fractal reflection of me. And so you can reactivate the core because you're part of it. Like, we don't know. Zerali could make them sick. Yeah. It's not that it's not necessarily because, because we know what doll says, the light does not abandon its champions. Now he could be speaking just for himself, or he might literally mean the light doesn't abandon anybody. The light, once you have light, it just touches everything. The light will never forsake you because it doesn't forsake. It can't. It's not a That's, thing that has an, uh, the mental capacity or a personality to do so. It yeah. Just if, if, do it. If this undead guy who's directly serving the Lich King can still use the light, clearly the light didn't revoke itself from him. It doesn't. When when the uh, Paladins tried to kick um, High Lord um, Tyrion Fordring, when they tried to kick him out of the Paladin Order, they stripped him of his rank and they exiled him to the, to the Plaguelands, which weren't the Plaguelands yet at the time. And he still could use the light. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the ability to take it away from him. Because once you find it, Once you can use it, you can use it. It's like, you know, I know how to use a crayon. You can't take my ability to use a crayon away from me unless you cut off my hand. And even then I could pick it up in my teeth and use a crayon. Like you have to go to some lengths to stop this. The Naru, if if Zerali comes back, we don't know what will happen, but it's very clear that the light has not abandoned Zerali. She's still using it all the time. Mm -hmm. She, she was, she, she turned a, that sword with a uh, Denathrius in it into a, like a, a, into like a disco. She was shooting so much light at it. So clearly the light's still there. And clearly the Naru probably would like, they would see her as infected. She's got something that they don't want in their system. Just because you put somebody in a quarantine ward doesn't mean you hate them. But for Zerali living in a quarantine ward would probably not be ideal when she can just stay there, serve the light and not be you know, you know, not risk the other, not not risk the 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 well being of the other Naru by making yeah, that choice, ex- right? Exactly. Yeah. No, we we don't know that that's the case. We're but we're, we're I, leaping. We're assuming, but that's it makes sense. Then the color thing, I think the color thing really does come down to. I mean, it might have something to do with touching another primordial forces. I don't know. 
Uh, clearly, when they get full voided out, they they turn like you know all sorts of colors, and even sometimes they grow like a void horrible bodies with their former Naru selves essentially as a cape on their backs. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. When you when you get a void lord, like when Muru turns into the Muru void lord form, he's got himself on his back. Like that's always just weird to me. But like they could be they could be interfering interacting with other forces, or it could just be that they are individuals. And this is how they reflect their individuality. But at the same time, the, each individual piece of a Naru is an individual piece. It could be used in a weapon. You could make an Ashbringer out of it or what have you. But it's also part of the Naru. So possibly every Naru is an individual, but is still part of the Naru as a whole. But I think that's going to do it for today. We could probably- No, I demand you talk about this at least a little more. <laughs> I think that's going to do it for today. We'll probably spend some more time talking about Naru on the next one because I think there's some more here to explore, and we do have some other questions to answer. Uh, if you do have questions for this podcast or the other ones, make sure you are sending them in. We do appreciate them. If you want to know more about the Naru, ask specific questions about the Naru. We very much would like to talk about them. You can send those in to podcast at blizzardwatch.com or one of our various Discord. And as always, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast lighting community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance of having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. And as always, all of us at Blizzard Watch stand with the employees of Activision Blizzard in demanding change for a better tomorrow and a safer environment. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.